Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, available wherever you get your podcasts. I am really happy to bring you part two of a discussion that Paul and I had with Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, who are the hosts of Politics Plus Media 101 an outstanding podcast, a really interesting podcast that has a great array of guests, the kinds of folks that we also have on our show. They both have a really interesting background in media and politics. Justin actually used to be a major Republican Party operative, and he changed his mind about all of that. That was really fascinating. And so here's what we did. We put the first part of our discussion in the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast feed. Check it out. In fact, you might even want to pop over there and listen to the first part first and then come back here to listen to the second part. I'm putting the link, at least for the Apple podcast version of it, in the show notes, but you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you're someone who is coming to us from that feed, from Politics Plus Media 101, then welcome. I hope you'll subscribe here. Your follows, your subscribes, your whatever they call it on the various platforms really help us out. So do your ratings and reviews. So with that, let's get to the rest of this discussion. We covered Rashida Taleb, Joe Biden, polling, young voters, all kinds of really fascinating stuff. And with that, here is Justin. I want to get your fellows take on an issue that is going to be morphing into presidential politics, but it'll wrap up our congressional segment here. Recently, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib was censured for, uh, I believe it's a a saying uh, that she promotes from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. She is arguing that there is no genocidal intent there, no you know anti-Israel intent there. And Aaron David Miller, who we just interviewed on this Israel Gaza for an hour and a half last night, he would disagree, as as would many others. So she was censored, but it wasn't a party line vote like some censors tend to go. Twenty two Democrats joined with Republicans. And again, Republicans are led by an evangelical Christian. Mike Johnson believes the earth's like 6,000 years old, completely nuts. But my first question is, would you both, if you're serving in Congress, have supported a, a vote like that? And my the follow-up is, what does this say about the Democratic Party, some of the more fringe elected leaders, and where the young elites at schools like Tufts, where I went to, Harvard, Columbia, where are they taking the party if Rashida Tlaib is someone that is being exalted as what should be a Democrat? Paul, since you 
used to be a member of Congress and could actually vote on something like this. Do you want to take the first one and I'll take the second one? Sure. And I'll just tell you that in a recent show, Matt and I and uh, Alicia Preston talked about this on Balance of Power, and we came out in different places. I was the first and so far the only Jewish member of Congress from New Hampshire. I took it seriously. I traveled to Israel with Steny Hoyer. You know, I'm a delicatessen Jew, but I feel my cultural roots really deeply. Rashida Tlaib's statements were odious, horrifying, insulting, wrong, because to the extent that uh, her statement is understood by and perceived to have genocidal implications, because that's what Hamas is about. They want to kill all Jews everywhere. It's horrifying. At the same time, I found myself hesitant to vote for censure because as odious as her speech is, I just found myself hesitating in saying that I would vote uh, to censure her, partly because this all arose in a tit-for-tat censure round robin that was going on, which that I thought was an unfortunate timing. I was surprised by my hesitancy because in general, I'm a firm, deep supporter uh, of Israel. And I also understand the background. And I, I refuse to, to engage in both sides-isms about what's happened. Hamas has caused this. The mess we're in has been caused by Hamas, both for the terrible murder, br the brutality against Israelis, and the Palestinian people are victims of Hamas. That's just how I view this. And at the same time, I, I hesitated thinking about the right of a member of Congress to speak what they believe. And at the same time, it's really, say, I think there's a lot of conflation going on between terrorism, anti-Semitism by young people that reflects decades of teaching and a sore spot in our educational system about teaching history and understanding the role of terrorism in, in, in geopolitics. So the Democratic Party is quite riven at this point by the issues. And I think part of that gets to the second part of Justin's question, which is about the influence of young voters, young on-campus voters, uh, highly educated elites. And look, there's a bunch going on here. One is that we know that the best way to understand the direction of the parties is to start to correct for and include in your polling and in the way you chop the data of what voters are doing, include educational level. Because what we're seeing is people who are college educated are skewing way further to the left. And we're also seeing the views of young voters and young college-educated voters also skewing way far to the left, much further to the left than kind of traditional Democratic Party views, much more in keeping with the Democratic Socialists of America, AOC branch of the party. And Paul is right. That is creating a real challenge. And I think it's been hard for Democrats and Democratic Party leaders to catch up to that, in part because of what the political analyst Roy Teixeira calls the Fox News fallacy. The Fox News fallacy is just because something is appearing on Fox News and you know that it's mostly bullshit because they're trying to put it up there to try and make Democrats look bad, it doesn't mean it's entirely without merit. I'll give you an example. In 2018, you might remember that in the run-up to the election, Fox News ran 
thousands, literally thousands of segments about the caravans. Ooh, scary. The caravans are coming to get us. It was all immigration. Guess how much coverage of caravans there was the day after Election Day 2018? Zero. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. You can Google it. Go to Media Matters. Look it up. The point is, Democrats tend to look at statistics like that and say, see, they're just demagoguing. Immigration isn't an issue. Well, that's not true either. Immigration is an issue, right? Our borders are an issue. It's the same thing with progressive overreach on campuses. Just because Fox News chooses the juiciest examples to kind of put up as the poster children for the excesses of the Democratic Party, and we know that they have an agenda, and it's not a kind one, that doesn't mean that there's not some merit in that. I mean, there is. We're seeing it. I think everyone here is probably seeing it in their alma maters right now. It's a real thing that the Democratic Party has to grapple with. The views of young voters who are progressive leaning are out of step with the vast majority, the, the, the mainstream of the traditional Democratic Party. And that is a major issue. I, I actually don't have a solution for this. The final thing I'll say is I've actually, I've done some statistical work about this. Five years ago, I wrote an article about this where I just pointed out that like the both sidesism of, well, Republicans are moving right, Democrats are moving left. Wasn't really true at the time. Republicans were moving way further to the right than Democrats were moving to the left. It's beginning to be a little bit less true. And it's because of these young voters. And it's, again, it's a major challenge and I don't have an answer for it. And I think where we can leave it is before this war that is going on, President Biden, in, in my humble opinion, has been the most successful legislative president since what FDR pulled us out of Afghanistan, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. He was coming in on the heels of an attempted coup by a madman who was our president who tried to just tear down the whole system. And despite all of these progressive things, reshoring manufacturing through the CHIPS Act, addressing climate change through the Inflation Reduction Act, so much more, young progressive voters still didn't like him. And I just cannot understand it. We had the most progressive president, arguably since FDR, and there's still some type of disconnect going on in the Democratic Party. Yep. He looks old. And we're in an ageist, we're in an ageist society. He looks old. He looks slowed down. And he's old and he's a little slowed down. I mean, he's still got it and he's still with it and he's done incredible things. We also are in a short attention span visual society in terms of the way we get our information. Trump as an alternative is sort of surprising because you've got a 78 year old 400 pound golfer. You know, I mean, so so there, there's no great there's no great comparison there. But I do think that the visuals matter. And he's not loud. He doesn't, he's not bombastic. That's a real problem. Well, and this goes back to a point, what Paul was just saying goes back to what John was saying earlier about the difference in, in the media environment, which is Republicans do benefit from being much more kind of monoculture. You know, they really only need to say one thing to be successful in most of their districts. Again, it goes back to Jerry, who their base is, Right. All of their incentives align around and all of their media cues align around. You just got to repeat the same thing. 
Democrats have a very different media ecosystem to respond to. And so that partly in my mind explains the fact that Justin's right. You know, Joe Biden has not only on policy been the most progressive president in decades, he's also given some major nods to the young progressive agenda in terms of, you know, just window dressing, language, statements about inclusiveness and sort of the language he's adopted that put him out of kind of the mainstream of most Americans. And he hasn't gotten anything out of that, right? Because you don't have a media ecosystem that's pumping it up and that's kind of repeating it and making sure that's getting into the ears of the voters that it's intended for. Donald Trump does. He does have a little bit of that home field advantage. And I, you know, if I were counseling the president right now, I would say, you know what, man, I'm not sure you're getting anything. All the nods you give to the woke left, I'm not sure they're getting you anything, right? You know, you're getting a lot of ingrates and you're turning off, you know, the suburban voters you need. So I would just, I just drop it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. You know, what's interesting is that it sometimes feels as though both American political parties and their supporters are so modest about their political achievements or pessimistic about their abilities to persuade. Because when you talk to Republicans about these same matters, about media and persuasion, you hear this incredible pessimism all the time, like, oh, the Democrats are so ruthless. They're so much better at communication than we are. And they look at some of their recent electoral results. Is that real? Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember after the 2012 election, there was so much of that. After Mitt Romney lost, really? there was the idea, we can't get anywhere in the media. Uh, the deck wow. is totally stacked against us. Obama such a great communicator. He's so slick. We can never land the kinds of talking points that we want to. Well, the, uh, okay. So that, look, that was then, and that was unique. In o Obama was a unique character. Uh, and a unique figure and a unique candidate. So in many ways, that's a one-off. And I can imagine Republicans saying, what do we have to do? This guy is like, you know, he's got the silver tongue. Everything he says is beautiful. He figures out how to say things and the four words that people remember. And why, you know, we can't touch him. That has changed, okay? That there were no Republicans crying into their beer now about the Democrats' advantage in using media. Let me tell you. All right, no, Justin, I'm absolutely fascinated by this because I can tell you that Democrats, we are the king of the circular firing squad. We are pretty sure about what Paul said just like a few minutes ago that we absolutely suck at this. You have sat inside the RNC as part of these, how do we get our message out? Is this true? Do you guys feel like you're on like the, you're at a disadvantage? Is that is this real? So to John's point, Republicans are pretty were salty and they still are. In their view, mainstream media is controlled by liberal elites who went to Harvard and, you know, all the Ivy Leagues and the good schools that liberals tend to go to. And, and many Republicans don't. And if they do go to them like I did, they become a liberal. I have to point out that John is sipping from a Yale mug right now. It's not mine. I'm not a Yaley. My significant other, she is a Yaley. <laughs> <laughs> no, I promise that's not mine. I turned the label around because I didn't. I think I'm around at the heart of some Harvard Tufts people. So, you know, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know whose mug this is. So to Obama real quick, I worked in a Tea Party office from Kansas and these staffers were all homeschooled, no abortion with any exceptions. So no exceptions at all, like the most extreme elite 
Tea Party members, real freaks. I don't want to call the your American voter that, but these are the elites of the party. And they were, every time President Obama would give a speech, they would be, yeah, he's a good communicator, but he's just lying. He's lying. So you don't need to listen to what he says. Just know that he's trying to become a dictator. And it was very funny to me because I was never that brainwashed. I'm like, okay, Obama's just beating these guys into, this, into the dirt. However, to Paul and Matt, your point, when we're sitting at the RNC, we're learning how to do everything. And the RNC, Raj Shah, who is now running House GOP Communications, he was my boss. He would direct us to James Carville and the Clinton campaign. So we would learn how they set up war rooms, what a war room was. And that was the real, what, apex top of the Democratic communication skills way back then. However, when we were sitting around discussing how the Democrats are communicating, and I hate to say this because I have some friends at the DRNC now, we were ruthless. We, and I still think they're pretty fucking terrible at their jobs. The RNC looked at the DNC as military men in America look at Canada's military, just completely unequipped. Don't even understand what's going on. When you do understand what's going on and when you put a, goal, uh, a shot on net, it, some mistake goes wrong. So when we would be, you know, creating our strategy for the week, I had Obamacare, I had national defense, veteran affairs. Those were my issues that I needed to turn out grassroots GOP voters on, maybe win some independence on. We'd create a good strategy and we'd turn to our left and they'd be like, hey, Justin, your counterpart at the DNC is shitting himself right now. He'll find out in a week why. So yeah, we, it was derision. I don't think for the most part that Democrats have been able to improve upon that. I look at the current press secretary. She's really bad in the White House. She was our liaison, okay. by the way, when Paul was running for the U.S. Senate. I, I used to have a weekly call with Karine Jean-Pierre about Paul's messaging. And Paul lost by 22 points in that Senate race. I'm not saying those things are connected. I'm just passing along that data point to you. It's not like I can throw stones. My liaisons were Corey Lewandowski, Paul Manafort, Kellyanne Conway, <laughs> Sean Spicer. So. And now these people are all on death row. Yeah, it's, you're an unindicted conspirator, Higgins. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> if, if you need a lawyer, call 1-800-L-A-W-Y-E-R. <laughs> Don't call Sidney Powell. I'll tell you that much. I want to say something about Justin's comparison to the Canadian military, because I think this is instructive for a surprising reason. So perhaps the RNC look at the DNC as the Canadian military to the American military. But guess what? What's the war record between the USA and Canada? Canada are 2-0. and oh. The US invaded Canada twice and then lost both times during the American Revolution and the War of 1812. And if we look at the recent election results, we start seeing a pretty familiar pattern here that's in line with Justin's parallel. I mean, look at the recent record of results. The Democrats are winning and the Democrats talk like they're losing, but they're winning. So perhaps they're really not quite so bad. That's part of the stealth communication strategy. Oh, woe is me. Oh, it's all terrible. And then we come in for the kill very stealthily. I think we fall upwards into a lot of that stuff. I mean, I do, you earlier mentioned, you invoked he who shall not be named, Newt Gingrich. That was the quintessential insight that he had that forever changed American politics. I know this has become a little trite to say at this point, but the way I experienced it on a staff level is I used to sit in plenty of rooms where we would be coming up with communication strategies, either for members of Congress or for candidates, where someone who had grown up in an earlier era of politics would tisk us about something 
that we wanted to say that was aggressive. They'd say, oh, no, there will be blowback to that. You can't do that. Voters won't like that. And Newt Gingrich's reaction was, fuck that. Because from his quintessential insight, maybe it was like two insights. One was, no, they don't. Voters actually kind of like the entertainment aspect of, you know, if they go low, you go lower, right? There's no blowback. And you see that difference, right? As younger generations of communication staffers came up, I, you probably experienced this, Justin. With It was like, no, you don't back up. You don't give an inch. You know, and the other insight that I think Newt had was that his communication strategy got to co-evolve with the new conservative media ecosystem. And that meant he knew who he was playing to. And he knew the kinds of stuff that would play there. He didn't have he didn't have to impress the op-ed board at the Washington Post. Who cares what they thought, right? You had to impress Roger Ailes. And that's what he set out to do. So, I mean, look, I still think that Justin's right. Democrats are not that great at this. But let me turn this into a question back to you guys, because this is very topical right now. We're fresh off of polling showing President Biden down three to five points in five out of the six most key swing states for 2024. And that's coming from both the New York Times and CNN poll. Then we had these election results, which granted were close. I don't want to say that this was like an ultra landslide, but look at the scoreboard. Democrats pretty much ran the table. And then you have the CNN panel kind of at pains to explain this here. What, what do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that I think, John, you just said it. It's like, okay, like maybe Democrats are worse at this, but look at the scoreboard. So simply put, and this was going to be a question I asked both of you, the way that I see it is abortion and abortion. And really succinctly for my boss was a Catholic, Christian conservative firebrand guy, like no exceptions. That means that I got to see the pro-life March for Life movement up front. And for 50 years, the Republican Party, the grassroots activists, which is both of you know, are the most important people that you want for a congressional district, a Senate race, a presidential race on your side, because they're force multipliers. Not only can they get their thoughts and views out into big local podcasts and local newspapers and the local broadcast hits, but they can fundraise money. They have friends that are on the ground, like foot soldiers, quote unquote, and, and then they can create and, and just juice, get out the vote turnouts. So for the Republican Party, their activists, grassroots activists have been almost overwhelmingly, at least a plurality, centered around abortion and specifically Roe versus Wade. So my boss would ride that with along with the Tea Party into winning his elections or into media appearances, what have you. Once Dobbs was overturned, it completely rewrote the conservative activist system. And, and Dobbs being overturned also coincided with the Kochs, one brother dying, the other taking a step back. And as everybody knows, through AFP and all these other dark money groups, they funded my boss. That They're responsible for coordinating, centralizing, organizing this grassroots effort for these activists, which has propelled the Republican Party in many state legislatures to have veto-proof majorities. So that has been happening on the Republican side. And then just flip around everything I've said into organizing these activists. The abortion issue has turned into gasoline on a fire of turnout for the Democrats from my 
outside perspective. So I'm hoping you guys can shed some light on the abortion issue and how it's maybe interacting on the side of the aisle that you folks are experts on. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. So on uh, our Balance of Power podcast, we actually took up the question and we had the really expert analysis and advice from a Republican. You know what? I'm running for Here I am. I'm running for office as a Democrat. What am I talking about? Well, you're talking about one thing and then you're tying it to another, maybe. And the one thing is they want to take away your right to choose, your individual freedom to do what you want with your own body. And by the way, they want to destroy democracy. It's all about abortion. They want, they, you know, that's what they want to do. They want to control you. And we don't. We want to protect your individual freedom. They don't. They want to take it away. And they want to take away freedom for the whole country and and have dictatorship. I would tie abortion and dictatorship if it was me together. But somebody might say I'm wrong, that I shouldn't even talk about the insurrection January 6th and dictatorship. All I should talk about is abortion. They want to control your body. Well, it would depend. No, it would depend on the polling results in your particular district or race or whatever you're running on. I mean, you know, the reality, and we talked about this on Beyond Politics as well, the reality is, and every one of us has sat in one of these rooms in some fashion or another, is candidates tend to want to talk about all kinds of issues. And they tend to think about their campaigns like they're up on a debate stage. And if they, if my opponent says this, I'll say that, and we'll get into, it'll be like a Lincoln-Douglas affair. And the reality is, what it always comes down to is, it's really hard to run for office in America. It sucks to run for office in America. You are exposed to all kinds of withering attacks on you and your family. Your spouse is unhappy with you. You are out working it all the time. And when you're not out at events, because being out at events is like blessed relief. You're spending the rest of your time on the phone calling everyone you ever met and asking the most uncomfortable question you can imagine. I mean, maybe the most uncomfortable question is like, have I told you about my herpes diagnosis? The second most uncomfortable question is, will you give me $2,000? John, you and I just met, but would you give me $2,000 right now? Why won't you give me $2,000 right now? Can I tell you how much that absolutely sucks? And so you're going through all of this and some bright, starry-eyed consultant is going to say, look, Matt, I get that you want to talk about all these other things. You can do that. It's your money. It's your life, but you're going to lose. And everything you're going through is going to be for naught. Or you can say only this poll tested message, which we have run about a thousand campaigns before. Most of the time when candidates follow our advice, they win. And so it's your choice, man. You can do it however you want. And so yeah. Except, of course, if you're talking about my 2010 United States Senate race, in which they couldn't come up with any issue that was a decent issue for me to talk about. So they basically just said, oh, really, whatever you want to say. Uh, because That's because you were running in the absolute worst cycle as the worst profile that anyone could be. Because your, your job is going to be to defend Obamacare, and nobody likes it, okay? So nobody likes it. You're, you have to defend it. And by the way, you can't say you're a congressman. If you say you're a congressman, you're certainly you're going to go down by 60 points. So so, you know, let's let, there was nothing they could say. So consultants in their polls, thank you very much. 
will only go so far. And then we can- If they will only go so, they will not save you if you're in an unwinnable race. Then we can talk about campaign advertising and how consultants misuse the polls to come up with campaign ads that don't make any fucking sense to anybody except they put the candidate in some uncomfortable place. I, I have experience with that as well. I mean, you, you got to ride in a Jeep. Oh, stop. Yeah. There was one decent ad with my dog who was out the window and the rest of it was, my God, it was unbelievable what they had me do. Anyway. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one for you guys have had the experience of being young staffers in New Hampshire or on Capitol Hill. So this is what happens to you if you're a young staffer. So this ad with the dog, or the key was we had a, this maniac. He's a good friend of ours, but he's a maniac. And I would say that if he were sitting here, he's probably the best director of campaign ads working in America, at least on the Democratic side today. Okay. And he's directing this ad and he wants this dog's face leaning out the window of the Jeep. If it's not leaning out the perfect amount, then it's cut. We're doing it again. And so we had this poor hapless staffer, all right, who had to put his face under the rear end of the dog to push the dog partly out the window. Even that wasn't achieving optimal lineage. And so my job, I'm a chief of staff in the U.S. Congress. My job was go to was to go to the Mr. Mike's convenience store in the Kentuckook gas station to buy some cheese to entice the dog because the dog was a cheese fiend to entice the dog to lean its head out the window. This is how politics works, people. This is how we elect our leaders. Is there any stupider system? This is like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas stuff. This is the the heyday of practical effects. We got to bring it back. Nowadays, they just do a CGI they, they dog. Would do a CGI. They would do a CGI Paul. They would. <laughs> They'd look a lot better than I do. They'd have you be on message. Or a body double. As many people who watch uh, OAN believe are, are in widespread use already. John Goodman would be my body double. Oh, that he needs to win an He's never even been nominated. We should make that happen. Can I ask you something? Since you guys have insights on the Republican side, what's up with that weird meme that Republicans are into where they put Donald Trump's head on Rambo's body? Is it pure homoeroticism or like, what's the deal? I actually have a theory about the Republicans and celebrities. And I was talking to Justin about this, I think yesterday or very recently. But my theory is that Republicans keep on electing celebrities and Democrats don't because for Republicans, they're so excited about the idea of getting any attention from a Hollywood figure because they're not used to it. And this is kind of what we were saying a little bit before about the reverse self-loathing that does happen on the Republican side, the idea, oh, the media is all stacked against us. We can't get a word in. Part of it is because of the sense that all the celebrities are on the other side. And so for Democrats, Mel Streep comes to your event and it's, you know, ho-hum. But for Republicans, you get a glance from Scott Bayo, and it's the most exciting thing in the world. That's and so that's why they so keep on electing Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, Sonny Bono, and rally TV guys, a guy from the real world, Sean Duffy. The Democrats don't elect people like this. Clay Aiken ran and he couldn't win. But the Republicans are so excited about getting the celebrities. This is the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh, my gosh. You're telling me that Republicans are basically, they would lose their shit if John Voigt winked at them. Meanwhile, oh, Paul got to, like, jam with Stephen Stills in his kitchen on guitar as part of his Senate campaign. And this was just one of the many celebrities that, that Paul got to chill with. John Voigt is 35 times the actor that Ronald Reagan ever was. <laughs> I mean, Midnight Cowboy, Deliverance, incredible stuff. 
Ronald Reagan was at bedtime with Bozo and they elected him president. Imagine what John Voigt could have done if he decided that he wanted to run for office. He could have done as well as Fred Thompson, maybe. Yeah, U.S. Senator. Oh, my gosh. Uh, have we? I have one more question. We may be devolving here or we may be evolving to an even better place. If people want, when we run this in our feed, if people want to find this, want to find your show, say the name of your show and where they can best find, where do you want people to subscribe? Our program is called Politics Plus Media 101. You can type in the symbol plus, or you can just type in the word plus and it'll come up. We're on all the podcast apps. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever people like to find it, it gets it gets published there. Yeah, you guys have an amazing guest list, I gotta say, just for our listeners and beyond politics. All the guests that you like best with us, you're finding a, a very similar but different slate over with you guys, and it's it's great stuff. <laughs>